Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. In our mid-month show, we talk with M, a fellow podcaster, and the force behind Verbal Diorama. Then we turn to our monthly roundup of movie news. Jeff has an At The Flicks news scoop. Graham returns to his most favourite of subjects. No, he doesn't. And I tell you about an upcoming action movie you will not want to miss. After that, Elijah returns and we discuss another screen classic. This month, Planet of the Apes. Graham will once again be in his element. <music> Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Hi, my name is Graham and my main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Hi, my name's Neil and I just like films. Well, except horror. Lads, have you seen that Disney have removed one of their fake outtakes from Toy Story 2? Yes, the sexist casting couch scene with Stinky Pete and the two Barbie dolls. So you approve of that? I do. Chimes have changed and there's no place for that sort of scene in a family film. As a grandfather-to-be, I have to side with Neil on this one. So where does it stop? Refuse to release some like it hot? Because in today's <laughs> LGBTQ community, there's no place for straight white men putting on women's clothing to hide from the mafia. I exclude you from that, Neil. You carry on. <laughs> Ignoring that comment, and back to Toy Story 2. Do you think that sets a good example in the Me Too world? I think we're sort of missing the point. As you have to look at it in context, the character of Stinky Pete is evil, and this mock catch-out off-camera just shows another aspect to his wickedness. Remember, no one complained about that scene until after it was removed. To me, this is Disney exerting control just because they can. An internal meeting decided that because of the Me Too connection to former Pixar head John Lasseter, it had to go. If this is the way forward, how long before all of Errol Flynn's and Charlie Chaplin films are banned? Trust me, they were no angels off screen, as the court cases against them prove. It is a 15-second clip removed from the film. The story itself is still intact. What do you want next, Jeff? Disney to re-release Song of the South? Well, funny you should say that, Graham. No, 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 no. I have no, I have no problem no, with that. No, no, Providing no. they show the film in context. In 1946, when the film was originally released, it was thought to be progressive in its take on race relations. Now, we know today that clearly is nonsense. However, if the film is shown with an intro by somebody like Leonard Maltin, who has done that in the past, discussing the historical significance and how social conditions have changed for the better, then I see no reason why it could be released. At present, no one can watch this film, not even film historians who have requested to watch it within the Disney studios, where prints and their viewing can be controlled. What's the result of that? Illegal copies from an early video release, sell for incredible amounts of money in the black market. Now, in my opinion, you can't hide from the past. Censorship will result in the exact opposite effect than intended. It's why the likes of Orangeman can rise, saying political correctness has gone too far. Jeff, as usual, you've gone too far. Have another five or six of those Valium tablets in front of you and relax. Graham, while he starts to snooze, let's get on with the show and pray we never find out what he's dreaming about. (laughs) 
While Jeff sleeps off his anxieties, let's go to our interview for the month. Recently, we spoke to M, the creative force behind the excellent Verbal Diorama podcast. We think M is unique. Each edition is based around a film that has meaning for her and is packed full of interesting facts told with great humour and enthusiasm. The list of films discussed include Titan A.E., Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow and Pleasantville. If you haven't heard Verbal Diorama yet, I would heartily recommend listening. Over to Jeff and M for the interview. Hello! The At The Flicks team listen to plenty of other podcasts. We listen for enjoyment and also to learn. We learn what works for podcasters and what doesn't. If it works, and to be honest, if we can copy it, we will. Steal it. Yeah. Sometimes we come across a podcast which we cannot emulate and just sit back and listen in awe. Verbal Diorama is one such podcast, and for this episode, we are really pleased to be talking to its creator, M. Hi, M. How are you doing? Hi, I'm really good, thanks. How are you guys? We're all well, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. We've even allowed Neil out at this late hour. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, excellent. I'm, I'm feeling really so here. lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so, my first question is, where does the name Verbal Diorama come from? I think I can guess. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's, a really, it's a really interesting question, and it has a slightly interesting story behind it. Anyone who obviously listens to my podcast will know that generally it's me talking to myself. When I talk to people about movies specifically, I have a tendency to talk a lot. This will become apparent if people listen to kind of later episodes of my podcast when I have guests on. And really, because I've always been a bit of a talker, that's kind of the reason I decided that podcasting was probably a a good thing to go into. I've always kind of been described when I passionately talk about things to have a a case of verbal diarrhea and I thought about that as a name for the podcast genuinely and then I thought thought, why would someone recommend a podcast to a friend called verbal diarrhea that is ridiculous that is literally the grossest thing I kind of thought well I, I like you know I like the I like that name but I don't like the endings and so uh the, the word diorama came into my head and I thought, I was like, I know what a diorama is. It's like a, it's like a little model of a scene or something, you know, usually it can be made of cardboard or wood or, or whatever. And I thought, well, a diorama is, is just showing a, a particular a scene or something. And I thought, well, that kind of makes a lot more sense than the other word, because that, that's kind of what I want to do. It's I want to verbally describe a movie. Everything just kind of fit. And at that moment, it felt, it felt like a light bulb kind of switched on in my head and I was like that's it that's what I want and and so yeah verbal diorama was was kind of born and and the first thing I thought was has anyone else thought of this excellent idea (laughs) and uh, and I checked and no one else in the entire world had put those two words together so I said well that that's it that's what I want that's that's who I am now and that's where it came from so it's quite disgusting and I can't believe I've just actually said that (laughs) it's quite clever Uh, yeah it's also very disgusting and um I hope that doesn't put anyone off. <laughs> and now I realise that's probably, <laughs> probably not not the nicest visual description of where my name came from, but it's the genuine truth. So But but they it's show. But it's so striking and, and when I was searching for podcasts, you know, that name, if you like, leapt off the screen at me. And then I was even more intrigued 
then I saw that you were talking about just one film, and that was Titan mm. AE. Again, so the two things, the name really stuck with me, that choice of film, which is a film from 2000, and it's a film that I think is largely forgotten today, although I really liked that film at the time. So what inspired you? You know, it's my first episode. I'll talk about something that may be forgotten today. What inspired you to do that? I'll be honest, it wasn't actually my first choice. Originally, I decided that I wanted to do animation specifically for the first episode because it's one of my favourite genres and it's something that I am very passionate about and I'm especially passionate about hand-drawn animation because I think it's such a beautiful art form. I think it's so underappreciated nowadays. You don't find hand-drawn stuff really anywhere now. It's all gone. So uh, originally, I don't think I've ever mentioned this before, but originally my first choice was actually Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas, Okay, uh, Mm. which is a film that was, well, it's one of the biggest flops of all time, which was one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. And the fact that it's got such a a good cast, really well-known people, but I'd never seen the movie ever. And so my first task was obviously to find Sinbad Legend of the Seven Seas. And I searched through all the streaming sites and I found that it was on a site. So I said, right, that's the one I'm going to do. So I started putting everything together for the show. I went back to the streaming site to watch the movie and it had gone. Oh dear. So I was like, well, okay, I've got a choice. I could either find the movie somewhere else or I could choose another movie. It just so happened that on the same kind of movie flops list that I was looking at, a couple down was was Titan AE. And it was something that I knew of, but again, I'd, I'd never actually watched. And it wasn't until I, I watched it and really kind of appreciated what it was and what it stands for. And then I looked into the, the history and, and the whole history with Don Bluth and Disney Animation. And I was just like, wow, this is so interesting. Like, this is what I need to do. Like, I need to talk about this movie because like no one seems to really remember it and no one knows about it. And and I kind of felt like it, it was kind of my duty, I guess, in a way, because I was like, well, I really want to stand up for this movie and and sort of say, you should watch this because it's actually really good. It's, I mean, yeah, it's got some problems, but and, and the CG aspects don't always work. But Don Bluth animation is so distinctive and it's just such a wonderful movie to watch. And it's obvious that so much love went into it. And it's such a shame that it's not, appreciated. And so that was why I decided that I, I had to do it. I thought it was so fascinating. I thought I, I, it was kind of like I knew then that was the one. It was a bit like, you know, getting the name sorted. A light bulb went on and I was like, the light bulb went on again with Titan AE. And I was like, I, I need to talk about this film. This is it. This is what I want to do. I think Bluth generally is underrated and, and more yeah. forgotten today. I mean, I remember back in the early 80s when Disney were in massive decline, he comes out with The Secret of Nim, which just yeah. is an incredible film. And, and Titan AE, again, he tried to push boundaries with it. Great film. Yeah. If it had been successful and if it had actually made the money and if, it, and if Fox Animation Studios hadn't basically folded because of the financial failure of Titan AE, then who knows what we mm. would have got. It's just a massively missed opportunity for that particular studio and it it's really sad that that is the legacy of titan ae subtitled it the movie that sunk a studio because that's what it's known for it's known for basically being such a disaster it destroyed a whole studio and it's actually worth a lot more than that it's worth to be known for more than that so you've got your idea for a show you've got your Mm -hmm. first film 
How long did it take you to put that first episode together? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It took a while. Um, I mean, I, I first had the idea for the podcast sort of last February. So that was like February 2018. That was when I, I just kind of chose the name and decided that this was what I wanted to do. I set up all the social media and everything. And I basically, I thought, well, I'll start like getting to know people on social media. That was kind of the the thing that I I kind of started doing. I had quite a lot of personal issues uh, last year. So it kind of kept getting put back because I felt like I wasn't ready to sort of put it out there. I kind of had a bit of a crisis of confidence, if I'm being honest. Is this the right thing to do? Am I just going to get laughed at? I think everyone kind of goes through those sorts of feelings when they're doing something new. Bearing in mind, I've never done anything like a solo podcast before. There were several occasions where I was going to do it and I I backed out and I, I was I was a bit of a chicken, to be honest. Being completely honest, I got to the end of the year and um, my granddad was very seriously ill and he passed away at the end of last year. And I actually went to visit him when he was in the funeral home and it was something that I I wanted to do myself because my granddad always was a massive champion of my voice and because I've always been the shy one I know it's probably hard to believe but I've always been, <laughs> really I've always been one of the shy grandchildren and um yeah I've always kind of struggled because my my siblings are so you know, so much more vocal than I am. And I know it's crazy. Um, <laughs> um, and, you're, you're, um, forcing, you're forcing me to think of some really loud people, I tell you. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, and, wow. But my granddad would always kind of sit with me and he'd tell me stories of like his younger years. And, you know, my granddad died when he was 90. So he used to tell me stories about the war. He used to tell me stories about when he met my grandma. He was always a massive champion of me telling him stories because I used to travel quite a lot. You know, I've traveled to quite a few countries and he would always want to know what I used to, what I did in those countries. And I know that it's something that if he actually understood, because I don't think many 90 year old men would understand what a podcast is. I know that he would be its biggest fan. So when I went to visit him, when he was uh, at the funeral home, I just kind of sat and had a chat with him which looking back was actually very strange because you're in the room with someone who's not there anymore I don't think but it's I, that strange I, no. <laughs> no. um I made him a promise and I said granddad I'm gonna do this I was quite determined at that point that I wasn't gonna let him down his funeral was in January um sort of mid-January and it was so- shortly after then I took most of the rest of January to figure out exactly the whole Titan AE thing and everything like that. And then I got the episode out mid-February. So overall, kind of a, a long process. But yeah, it, it took it took about a month. And I was still having crisis of confidence and stuff during that time. But I, I kind of felt, I guess, that that's what my granddad would want. So that's what I did. Hopefully, wherever he is, he's listening and he's enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know. I'm really glad you did it because we would have never stumbled across the episode yeah. and we wouldn't be having this conversation now. And hopefully, from, and we'd say this to our listeners and I'll say it again at the end, if you've not listened to M's podcast, seek them out. They are well worth it. Thank you. Okay, so as you can guess, we're fans of the podcast yeah. as well. <laughs> um, and you put it across with the real enthusiasm. You know, there's a mix of synopsis, your personal views on the film, 
some fun film facts as you go through. How do you go about structuring that? I don't really know. (laughs) I don't really have a a structure per se. I mean, I always kind of think I want to focus on what makes the movie interesting. The things that I like to look at are the history and legacy of movies. I like to look at the production. I like to look at the casting. You know, I like to look at the choices that made, that came to make that decision to actually make the movie in the first place. And then obviously the history of the movie, for example, with Titan AE, the, the history of the movie is probably just as interesting as the production. I I like to kind of at least focus on one of those aspects. What makes one movie interesting is is kind of completely different for another one. So obviously with Titan AE, the, the actual production of it and what they put into it is interesting, but it's kind of what came after. You know, you can't really compare that to something like like Dread. I find Dread completely fascinating because of it is kind of what came after, but it's like the fan reaction to it and and the movement that, that fans can, you know, in a positive way, they can affect a movie's release. And that's what I found completely fascinating about Dread was the way the fans all kind of came together to support this movie, which is absolutely wonderful, by the way. It's like so much blood and guts, but so gorgeous. Um, I'm such a big fan of Dread. And yeah, so I kind of structure episodes really depending on what I'm doing, because I kind of feel like you could have 10 questions or 10 points that you want to talk about, but they might not be completely valid for the movie that you're looking at. So I tend to kind of look at each one individually in that sense, I guess. There's always going to be, you know, I'm always going to look at why the person cast or you know how how did that mo- this movie come about i try and make it a bit personal to that particular movie and that research that you do again it sounds like you put a lot of effort and time into that yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> lots of time it takes a long time luckily the the internet is a great resource there's so much especially for Movies like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where there's like all sorts of like videos of how they did things. And it's so fascinating. It just, I could sit and watch things like that, just like pretty much constantly. I'm not going to lie, because I'm so fascinated about the movie making process and, and what goes into it. And the research part of it, if I could just get away with copying a Wikipedia page, then I probably would. But <laughs> unfortunately, uh, Wikipedia is a great resource, but Sometimes, sometimes some of the stuff on there is a little bit incorrect. The, the research takes up the majority of the time, definitely. It's funny, because uh, talking on research and finding out facts, we um, had a situation last week where Graham and I were on Radio Gloucestershire talking about the Shawshank Redemption. So um, I put a mini script together for, um, for Nikki Price, who does the, presents the show in the afternoon, and I put some fun facts together. So there's a sequence in that where Brooks feeds a maggot to the bird in his pocket. Yeah. So the story that's on the internet, and this is what you'll find pretty much everywhere, is that the animal rights stepped in and said, you can't feed a live maggot to that bird for the purposes of entertainment. You've got to wait till the maggot dies. So in the end, they give up on that. And But that's the story. The story that went round was that, yeah, they wait till it's died, then they fed it to the bird. In fact, that isn't true. What really happened was they said, this is just ridiculous. So they made a model of a maggot out of baby food and fed that to the bird. But that isn't the story that you'll find on the majority of the internet. But that's the truth. Yeah. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's almost like if if someone says something enough times, it kind of makes it true. You kind of reach a point where it's like, well, if you've got this on this site and this on this site, you know, which is true. 
unless you ring up the director and ask him or her personally. <laughs> yeah, and you're um, assuming they remember. Yeah, exactly, because for a lot of them, it's been a while. So Absolutely. Yeah, we were chatting to a uh, – well, we got a chat coming up with the director shortly, and um, that's where we learned about assistant directors and what they do. So I'm sure that a lot of stuff goes on. The director never, never even gets to see. Not a yeah. chance he's seen yeah. any of it, yeah. Yeah, I've listened to all the shows, and I've never heard anything on there that I would say is incorrect. It's always spot on. So, oh. uh, yeah. Thank the you. Search is paying <laughs> off. I just want to remind our listeners at this stage – that verbal diorama is just UM. That's what I find amazing because we're a team of three. Well, two and Neil. And oh, we- that's so <laughs> harsh. Oh, I've so often. <laughs> and we need to bounce ideas and energy off one another during the course of a show. So how do you find working on your own for each episode and getting the great results you do? How do you do it? It's not easy talking to yourself. I always find that you get that energy from talking to others, getting their points of view, getting their opinions. And I did think about having a co-host at some point. I guess I, I kind of, because I'm a bit of a control freak, I like the idea of doing everything, which kind of sounds a bit odd. But but yeah, I mean, what I do is I generally kind of choose what I want to do. I started doing polls on Twitter for, for film choices just because that makes it a bit easier. Yeah. Uh, I don't kind of have the pressure of choosing the wrong thing. You, uh, on that subject, if I may interject there, didn't seem mm-hmm. happy with the Daybreaker poll. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, I kind of feel like pitting Daybreakers against Cabin in the Woods was, was a bad idea in with hindsight. Um, <laughs> but I have a lot of love for Daybreakers. I think it's a really interesting premise. And I've kind of put it back in the pot. What I kind of like, if I feel like I desperately want to do Daybreakers for episode 15 or whatever, then I can. I, I have that flexibility to be able to do that. And that's kind of nice pretty much do whatever I want. So I kind of feel like, you know, I've got all the power and, you know, a bit like Jafar the Genie at the end of Aladdin, you know, that I've basically got all the power right now. It's not the easiest thing in the world, which is one of the reasons why it's currently a two-week process because all of the, so obviously choosing the movie, I try and choose the movie before the previous episode goes out now so that it gives me a chance to get those results in, source the movie if I need to, et cetera. And, um, and obviously then start kind of researching the movie. And obviously, um, like I said, I, I have a full-time job. You know, I have other commitments that aren't my full-time job. You know, I've obviously got family and friends that I do need to see, you know, occasionally. Because I am a bit of a talker, I, I do kind of find it quite I'm not afraid to talk to myself, which I guess is kind of a good thing, but I'm also not afraid to talk to other people either. So so I've started the process now of kind of having guests on and, and I've just actually recorded with a guest for the first time. That was very, very fun for me because I thrive a little bit off of talking to like-minded people. But generally for the episodes that I've put out, obviously I do do everything. So I choose the film, I research the film, I watch the film, I record the episode, I edit the episode, I do all the social media, I release the episode, I then do, I have like a process where once the episode is released, I have like a little social media plan in my head. I don't, I don't do social media for a job, by the way, this is just how I feel like I should do it. Um, I like to kind of build up the episode beforehand, I like to release it, and then I like to kind of do little reminder 
things on social media about bits that I mentioned in the episode or have you heard the episode, that sort of thing, promote the upcoming episode and kind of announce that. And whilst also generally kind of chatting to people on social media, which I very much enjoy. It's not easy, but somehow I do it. You're talking about social media. I've noticed as well that you, anybody that follows you, you'll put a little thank you note out to them. Thank you for following me. I mean, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't do that, but I've got to admit that's really classy. I think for many years, there's been loads of people who've really enjoyed films and suddenly they find that there's a whole raft of people who are also interested in films producing interesting mm. stuff about films. Neil and I are great fans of Movies with Mikey yes. on YouTube. Yes, and he's oh, yes, fascinating. And he's a strangest yeah. guy and he's yeah. gone through a hell of a but life. He's but brilliant. He's, his views on movies, you think, did I really watch the same movie? Because he's, that's he's constructing some of these movies and you're going... How did you see that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, wow. it completely fascinates me as well. And I love watching stuff like that on YouTube. And I mm. love, I always get such a thrill and, and a joy of of listening to other people's podcasts, you know, watching their videos on YouTube. And, and a lot of the time, like you guys, I'm like, how did they get to that conclusion, you know? And then yeah. you think about it and you're like, well, that makes complete sense. Like, yeah. I can't believe I didn't think about that. And I, I'm just like, I get blown away by the, the work and the sheer, you know, and the intelligence that goes into stuff like Movies with Mikey, which is something that I've recently discovered as well. Well, um, you want to see his one on Logan. That is really, oh. really interesting. And again, okay. I'm a big superhero fan. Jeff's holding his head in his hands at the minute. But, you know, well, I watched Logan and I really, really enjoyed it. But this guy got like four times as much out of it as I did. He's got loads of them. And his Harry Potter ones are phenomenal. He did one on In Defense of The Last Jedi, Star Wars, which was absolutely incredible. I just thought, I watched it again. I went, oh, I get it. (laughs) Yeah. And then you you watch it. It's almost like you watch it with completely different eyes. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think he probably watches too much TV. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I definitely want to check out that um, Logan one because Logan is one of my favourite superhero movies ever. So yeah. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. I've watched uh, the original version that came out in the cinema and then they brought out Logan Noir, which yes. I then watched at home. And I was just blown away by it in black and white. I was just like, it adds so much yes, to the it story. Does. and it does. I adore Hugh Jackman. I think he's absolutely wonderful. Um, And X-Men is a particular passion of mine. And it's something that I will be covering shortly because uh, obviously we have a new X-Men movie coming out. Um, Which I am incredibly worried about. I am so uh, worried. (laughs) So worried about this thing. Um, Uh, I mean, I I think Sophie Turner is a fabulous actress and I I loved her in Game of Thrones. And I think she's really, really special. But I'm not happy about what they're doing with X-Men. I'm really worried. I hope I'm proved wrong. I hope I'm proved wrong. We've spoken about Titan AE. You've also done excellent shows on Pleasantville, Dread, Sky Captain, The World of Tomorrow, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So you've mentioned slightly about your selection criteria. You know, you're now putting choices out for people. But really, when you put that choice out of two films for people to pick from, are you picking from things you particularly like or you want to bring to their attention? How do you go about that, Em? I currently have a list. It's currently got 76 
movies on? I guess I don't really have a, a set criteria other than do I enjoy the movie? Because if I don't enjoy it, then I kind of feel like, well, I'm not going to bother talking about it because if I've not got that enjoyment and passion for it, then I'm never going to put something out that kind of panders to other people. I'm the one who's got to talk about it. If it's a movie that I particularly don't like or don't have an appreciation for or can't find to like about, then um, I probably wouldn't include it. There's certain things that I really love. I've mentioned animation. Obviously, I'm a big fan of the superhero genre in general. So, But I, I'm also mindful that I don't want verbal diorama to be animation, superhero, animation, superhero, animation, superhero, because people are not going to enjoy it. They're going to, you kind of get into a routine, it kind of gets a bit dull. So criteria wise, I like movies that say something. For example, Pleasantville, I think it has an important message. It's also a, a completely beautiful film. It's got there's a lot of technological advancements in that film that were just kind of coming to fruition at that point. And it's obviously Pleasantville is completely different to every other film that I've, I've done thus far. But I think it's important to talk about films like that. I'm fascinated by movies that flop. I have mentioned a couple of times because I've when I started doing the polls, I, I put the movie John Carter. Um, specifically in the poll, and it lost. And I kind of said, look, I am going to come back to John Carter because I find that so fascinating because it's got such a rich and varied history. Obviously, it's based on Edgar Rice Burroughs novels yes. that have been in the mainstream for a, a considerably long time. It's obvious material that has been had other things based off of it. It fascinates me still that John Carter flopped so terribly. So yeah, stuff like that, stuff that's flopped. I'm also want to talk, I am going to be talking specifically in a future episode about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse because oh, I think that's one of the greatest animated fantastic. movies of all time. I think it's gorgeous. I think yeah. it's wonderful. Yeah. I, I love how it goes into the Spider-Man lore. I love how it. you've got all of the different multiverse aspects coming together yeah obviously i'm a big superhero fan in general so that obviously helps but and the look I think of the film as well gorgeous yeah I, and, and again gorgeous. i mean it's computer generated but then they went back and hand drew a lot yeah. of the cells which is fantastic so it goes back to your original point about hand-drawn animation yeah. really i i don't have a criteria i'm just like what do i like it goes on the list and then I move stuff up and down as required. And obviously the next few episodes that I'm going to be planning at this point to have got guests on, and I've given my guests the option to choose. I suspect, though, I'm never going to see your um, view of it in any of those polls, am I? Never. <laughs> no, I thought not. Never. <laughs> I, yeah. And the thing is, is I've, I've heard that people who've seen that particular film, because obviously there's a chapter one and a chapter two, and and. I think it kind of stems from when I was much younger, I caught a glimpse of the TV miniseries that came out with um, where Tim Curry, Curry yeah. was Pennywise. And it scared me so much that I would never, and the whole clown thing as well, scary clowns just do not work for me <laughs> uh, at all. You will never hear me talk about it. And being honest, you'll never hear me talk about like the Saw franchise or Hostel or anything like that. I, I am not interested in watching someone having to chop their own arm off. So I hope you're sitting comfortably for the toughest question of the night. Okay. Which of the shows so far has given you the most pleasure to make and why? Well, do you know what? That's a really easy question. That's oh, right, probably sorry. the easiest question so far. Oh. Um, <laughs> 
I think my favorite has been Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, just because I have that fascination with how movies get made. And Sky Captain had a particularly difficult sort of gestational period. It was self-financed for a lot of it. They couldn't actually sell it to anyone. They managed to get a studio uh, interested. But at that point, they'd already kind of basically done a whole kind of test shoot. What Sky Captain actually did, like how it was made, and the, it, it basically invented the blue screen slash green screen that that pretty much every single movie is now using. Pretty much all backdrops nowadays are CGI. It's very rare that films get shot on location. They're normally shot in a studio. So the practice of having a film sort of from beginning to end that's shot in that way, where the actors are literally acting with a backdrop that they don't even know where anything is. They have to kind of be told, you need to stand there. You need to look at this. This is going to come over. And it is a little bit dated because it, it's kind of the very kind of early CGI. So the robots uh, don't look particularly menacing. They just look a bit cartoonish because it's so underrated and and so responsible for so much of the stuff that's now coming out. I mean, Marvel Studios, especially because I mentioned in the episode, the links to Captain America, the first Avenger, just how similar they actually are as movies. And Captain America, the first Avenger is, is one of the Marvel films that I think is seriously underrated. I think it, it's something that grows on me every single time I watch it. I, I enjoy it more and more. Sky Captain deserves so much more attention and love. I think that it's something that people should go out and love and respect and watch and, and enjoy. And we're never going to get a sequel because we just aren't. It's never going to happen. Take it for what it is. It's super good fun. It's really kind of the starting point because I kind of feel like, and I mentioned in the episode, that movies like Sin City and 300 are kind of, they're kind of given respect, I think, a little bit more because it's like, well, they started it. And it's like, well, actually, no, Sky Captain predates those movies by at least a good couple of years. So we need to give Sky Captain the respect it deserves. That is my favourite episode. That is super easy. That right. is it. Sky Excellent. Captain. Well, that's it's it's on my list to rewatch. Uh, submit um, absolutely, you must. Yes, no, I'll definitely give that a go. So, all of your episodes are, are all of that theme, but there was you had a mini episode in there about Captain Marvel. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, and what was it about that film that impressed you? Everything. As a fan of superheroes, as I've mentioned, pretty much like a billion times already, <laughs> um, I have been super like into pretty much the MCU since it started. Prior to that, I've always been a big fan of the X-Men franchise. Um, I love the Blade movies. I mean, Blade, even Blade Trinity in a little way. But, um, <laughs> oh, God, you are hardcore. Uh, Blimey. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not great. So Captain Marvel is pretty much the culmination of my journey through the MCU. It's something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. I was... Very, very excited when DC announced they were doing Wonder Woman. We we had Black Widow, and I think Black Widow, firstly, I think that her movie is coming far too late. We should have had her movie ages ago. Not sure why they didn't do that. I can only feel it was a, they weren't sure whether a Black Widow movie would sell. I think we've proven now that it would. And obviously DC kind of coming out of the gate before Marvel and announcing Wonder Woman, I think maybe gave Marvel a bit of a kick up the bum because Wonder Woman came out and I would say the first kind of two thirds of that movie are absolutely phenomenal. It blew me away having 
Diana on screen and seeing this performance from an actress who's, well, for me, I'd seen her in the Fast and the Furious franchise. I wasn't sure was she the right person. I thought she was great. I thought she was brilliant. And then obviously Marvel came along and they said, right, we're going to do Captain Marvel. And I was like, well, this is late. This is later than it needs to be. We should have had a woman come along well before this. I specifically wanted to see the movie and I wanted to take my niece because my niece is eight. She's quite girly. I'm not going to lie. I try and get her to watch interesting films. I've always said I don't want her to kind of grow up on the stuff that I kind of grew up on, which was, you know, Disney princess and stuff like that. I I want her to experience a wide variety of of movies and be really interested. But with Captain Marvel, you know, I wanted her specifically to know that she can be a hero too. It's not just for the boys. It's never just been for the boys because her reasoning for not wanting to watch a film was usually, oh, that's a boy film. Kind of conditioned through society that boys can only watch boy films, I use inverted commas, and girls can only watch girls films in inverted commas. And and I want her to know that she can do the same. If she wants to watch Captain America, she can watch Captain America. And so this film had a lot riding on it for her. And to be fair, she was a bit bored at the start because she's only eight. But as soon as it kind of got going, she was loving it. She was absolutely into it. And she thought it was amazing. And she came out. She was like, I want to be like Captain Marvel. And I was like, you can be like Captain Marvel. You can do whatever you want to do. That meant so much to me as a woman who has been told so many times by men to shut up and to be quiet and to smile more. Women are told that they shouldn't have a voice. Mm, And it spoke to me on so many levels. It spoke to me on that level. It spoke to me about, you know, when you get knocked down, you just got to keep standing up. And obviously the soundtrack, that was my teenage soundtrack. I got back from seeing it and I was like, I've got to say something about this. I felt like I had to. I felt like I had to say something. And so I literally put something together really quick and I I got it out the door. And at the end of the day, it's only going to benefit. You know, we're not taking away from the the male superheroes. We're adding to the male superheroes. I think that that's just, you know, I know a lot of people aren't particularly happy that they think that this this is some agenda that we're trying to take away from what we have. We're not. We're trying to add. We're trying to make this universe more, you know, better, more inclusive. She's going to be the linchpin going forward, and I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Stepping away from superheroes. Okay. I know it's going to hurt everybody here to do this. (laughs) So at the time of recording, the most recent episode you've got out there, Em, is Cabin in the Woods. Now, Mm -hmm. I've got a challenge for you. I work with two wusses, Neil and Graham, (laughs) who are too scared to watch any horror films. What would Uh you say to them to encourage them to watch this particular film? Well, firstly, I'm not that scary so you could definitely listen to the episode without fear Uh, there's going to be no no jump scares in the episode or anything like that the episode I do go into a little bit of detail in the episode about why I think you should watch it the problem with the episode that I've put out is obviously it's it's full of spoilers Mm. and Uh, I (laughs) I feel like Cabin in the Woods is a movie that is best watched without spoilers because what it does, it was marketed as a, as a horror movie. So initially, when I saw the trailers, I was like, nah, that's not for me. Because it, it's marketed as a traditional slasher movie mm. uh, in the vein of Halloween and, and that sort of thing. So it, it, it purposefully does that. Obviously make horror movie fans want to watch it 
unfortunately, it obviously, it then has this thing of putting off people who might not be into horror. But it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword in that respect. The thing that I love so much about The Cabin in the Woods, it does go through a process of, of building tension as all horror movies do, because normally in a horror movie, you'd have, you know, most of the time they act like complete idiots, don't they? Because yes. they always run in the direction where the monster is and stupid things like that. So you, you tend to kind of scream at your TV, like, why are you running that way? Like, you're being an idiot. And what the movie essentially is trying to do is it takes all of those tropes, like the final girl. And what I love so much about The Cabin in the Woods is that it takes the the this final girl. You think... Initially, the movie kind of says, well, you know, she's the innocent virgin. You know she's going to survive because that's who she's kind of portrayed to be. But what it does so well is it takes all of the typical tropes of horror movies and it subverts them in ways that you wouldn't expect. I don't obviously want to go into the plot because I feel like I I would be spoiling it. so, Um, so, So let me just take that in a slightly different direction then. So you would have seen the trailer when it first came out. And as you say, the trailer advertises it as a standard cabin in the woods with the teenagers horror movie yeah did it put you off initially to watch it were you worried about watching this yeah absolutely I was absolutely petrified I was like I'm not going anywhere near this movie and and what it was that actually swayed me was when I realized it was co-written by Joss Whedon and being a big fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer it's like well if it's written by him so I kind of felt that well if it's Joss Whedon um, and it's also it's directed by Drew Goddard, who actually wrote quite a few episodes of, of season seven of Buffy as well. Well, with those guys, maybe I will actually enjoy it because I kind of felt at the time that if Joss Whedon's involved, it's going to be good. So I decided that I'd give it a go. And I, I finished the movie. I was like, wow, that was so smart. It was so intelligent. There are jumping you know, moments where you kind of go, <gasps> You know, because it's 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 supposed to do that. It subverts those tropes really well. It's a really intelligent, and it also taps into current culture as well. Because as much as I hate it, reality TV is kind of the 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 in thing at the moment. You know, Love Island, Big Brother, that sort of thing. You know, okay. they're, they're ne- every- Neil's our specialist on those. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Big fan of Love Island, eh? I mean, I'm not really into the whole reality TV thing, but it taps into that as well. It does attempt to give you like those jump scares and it it does attempt to build up the tension. But once it gets going with the subversion of all of these tropes and then the the penny drops and then you realise what it's been doing this whole time. And you'll just I'm always blown away by the level of detail that they go into and then the realisation of what it actually is. It's just like even the way the movie starts is nothing like you'll ever expect that opening is what am I watching now exactly you're a little bit like what what is this am I in the right am I watching the right film yeah that's how it it gets you it gets you at the start it draws you in it 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 really does it well because you kind of think well what am I watching and then you and then the title flashes up and then you're like oh my god this is going to be good (laughs) okay we've we've kept you a long time on this I'm sorry but just having a fascinating conversation like I say for me what what I like is the choice of films that you pick are slightly off kilter. They're not sort of generally in the mainstream. A lot of them didn't make it through the first time. And it's like you're championing the course of them. I mean, Dread was uh, financially didn't make its money back, certainly Sky Captain and certainly um, Titan AE. But they're great listens. And the thing for me that really comes out of each episode is 
I must watch that again. Well, that's wonderful. That's that's all I want is is for someone to listen to an episode of mine and just kind of say, "Wow, I'm I'm really interested in watching that. I really want to see." this movie again, you know, and, and to kind of have that reinvigoration for, for something. That is ultimately what I do this for. Podcasting, you're certainly not doing it for, you know, the fame or the money or anything like that, because neither apply, but do it because you have a genuine love for what you talk about. And the only thing you can you can want from that is to is for someone else to see that passion and, and to take something from it. That's all I would want is for someone to to want to watch something that I've spoken about. Well, I mean, we're certainly big fans of the show. And as I said, I'm always looking forward to the next episode coming out and uh, listen to it as as soon as I can. So for our listeners, where can they Mm -hmm. find your show? Okay, well, obviously, I'm on social media. I tend to kind of keep a regular social media presence, mainly on Twitter, because I find Twitter a lot easier. I have a Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and it's really easy to find because they're all the same name. So they're all just at Verbal Diorama. Because obviously when I chose the name, I wanted to make sure that it was available everywhere. And it was. I am always down for a bit of a discussion about anything on Twitter. I tend to hashtag what I'm watching. Generally, if you want to find the actual podcast itself, I guess the easiest way to find it would probably be to go to my website, which I've very recently built. So it's there's not much on it, but I'm I'm trying to obviously get that Uh, a little bit more content on that. So that's just at verbaldiorama.com. You can just search for me in your podcast app. You'll you'll find me. If anyone does really, really, really like me, you know, leave me rate or review on iTunes because honestly, it's the best way to tell podcasts that you enjoy them is just to give them a a rate and a brief review and just tell tell them what you like. So I would implore anyone who listens to podcasts to, you know, it doesn't take long. It's just a quick click and a few words, but it it honestly makes podcasters day. We certainly second that, but it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, Em. And um, I, I it's do. It's wonderful talking to you guys as well. Yeah, I, I do hope in the future we can get together again. But it sounds like you've got a busy few months ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm I'm pretty scheduled up until because I I purposefully have scheduled myself up until September. But I am if if you guys do want me to ever come on and talk about anything, I am more than happy to talk about Buffy. I would be more than happy to come on and uh, and discuss anything with you guys because, you know, you've always been ch- a champion of this show and your support has always been wonderful. Um, Jeff, especially, has sent me some lovely emails and has gone so far as to, you know, support the show in a small financial way, which I'm very, very grateful for. Oh, you're um, welcome. Because being a, an indie podcast is not easy. You know, it, it does take a lot out of you. It's, but yeah, just to have that support um, and to know that I know you guys are available if I need any help or if I've got a question. It's, yep. it's, it's just been wonderful to have those those people behind me. And And I've always kind of said that although I'm a solo podcaster and I do this alone, I, I know that I'm not alone. And that is a wonderful feeling. It's thanks to people like you and to other podcasters who were so open to supporting other podcasts. The community is is such a wonderful place to be. It's it's so engaging and inviting and friendly. And and I was so afraid to join this community. And I'm like, well, but why was I? <laughs> because it's so nice and people are so friendly. And it's been an absolute joy thus far, to be honest. Oh, that's excellent. And we're always there if ever you need anything. That's brilliant, Em. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, M, for a very informative discussion. I must catch up with some of those films, though still not sure about Cabin in the Woods. No, no, no. I'd rather listen to Jeff's non-PC rantings. OK, time to suit up for the movie news. This month, we have an At The Flicks exclusive in our movie news. A couple of weeks ago, we had the real pleasure of meeting actor and writer Russell Myers. Russ is about to star in a film he's written called Falkland Square. We asked Russ, what is the film about? And he said, Dave, his main character, is a veteran of the Battle of Goose Green from the Falklands War. Suffering from PTSD, he is now living on the street with his dog Sally. He gets into a fracas with a teenager and has to run away before he gets into even more trouble with the law. He comes across a lay-by where Malky, an ex-serviceman, owns a burger van. They meet and find out that they can help each other. That's a very topical subject. I completely agree, and I asked Russ what inspired him to make the film, and he advised two reasons. Firstly, I am the son of a soldier. Whilst living in Germany in 1978, my father died. Within a few days, my mother, brother and myself landed at Luton Airport, fatherless, homeless and friendless. We were entirely left to fend for ourselves. More recently, I was working for Sky TV, selling their services along the South Coast shopping centres from Bognor Regis to Poole, where there is a Falkland Square. I witnessed many people living on the street and I took the time to speak with many of them. For about 50% of the people I spoke to, I discovered they were ex-service that found it very difficult to reintegrate back into society having served. These experiences prompted me to write the film. Filming on Falkland Square begins in August, with the majority of the feature being made in Portsmouth, although some scenes will be filmed in London and the Midlands. The excellent production company Great British Entertainment Limited are behind this film. And Russ also told me... Great British Entertainment Limited is pleased to give a young director his first break on a feature film. Miles Petford has directed a number of short films and has worked in Canada on a number of TV shows and music videos. What's the latest news on the Faulkner Square? Well, Neil, Russ has kindly invited us to come to the set for a day in August. We will cover that visit in a future movie news slot. This is a passion project, as you can probably tell from the way it was described, and as such... The At The Flicks team will be giving it our full support. And after that inspiring news, let's go over to Graham. I said it before, Jeff, and I'll say it again. You're a bastard. I support that, Graham. Lads, what's wrong? I've given Graham top quality movie news. No, Jeff, after months of storing it up, you have given me more Mel Bloody Gibson stories. Not one, but two films. In fact... I don't know which one of them is the most controversial. They both sound equally bad. You say that, Graham, but we do keep getting listener correspondence <laughs> from people who are convinced you are actually a Mel fan and this is all a bluff. <laughs> uh, Jeff writes. <laughs> Jeff writes. <laughs> no, no, we are actually getting correspondence saying to that fact. <laughs> yeah, is this, is this a false flag operation? Is yeah. that what they're saying? A Mel fan? No, no. <laughs> It is just Jeff making me read this shit. First up, Mel is about to star in Rothschild along with Shia LaBeouf. Oh, this one just keeps getting better. 
Set among the New York ultra-rich, the Rothschild family are at the top of the rich list, except that is for Beckett Rothschild, LaBeouf, the family outcast. He plans to murder his way to his inheritance by killing nine relatives who stand between him and the family fortune. Top of the pyramid is the mega-rich and mega-evil white law Rothschild, Gibson, Good casting for the evil part. Hang on a minute. That just sounds like the Ealing comedy Kind Hearts and Coronets. It's a remake. Jeff hasn't passed those details on, so at this stage, I don't know. He was probably too eager to get me to mention Mel Gibson as often as possible, <laughs> so little journalism was done. What I find fascinating is the film title and family name of Rothschild. That is very close to famous Jewish family. Given Mr. Gibson's comments in the past, the film is already attracting its share of criticism. That, however, is nothing compared to what that Welsh bastard has given me next. Mel Gibson as Santa Claus. Where you're concerned, Graham, I just see Mel as the gift that keeps on giving. This should be a film every family should be rushing to see. I did expect this to be called The Nightmare Before Christmas, but that film title is already taken for some reason. Instead, it is called Fat Man. Are you starring opposite Mel in this one, Jeff? Gibson off. <laughs> in Fat Man, Mel Gibson plays a rowdy, unconventional Father Christmas who has a contract put out on him by a 12-year-old who finds Santa has just left him coal for Christmas. Filming for Fat Man starts early 2020 and the film is expected to be a big Christmas treat in December of next year. I will make sure I take my grandchild, Neil. You're going to be taking yours to the male Christmas experience. Oh, Gibson off. <laughs> Jeff, I'm not a granddad yet. It's a long time. We're talking about 18 months' time. <laughs> Jeez. Wept. OK, let's return to normality for my piece of film news. Just finished filming in London and Kiev is Legacy of Lies. British martial arts star Scott Adkins plays ex-CIA agent Martin Baxter. Baxter is forced back into the murky world of spies when a Ukrainian journalist turns to him for help after she uncovers a covert operation by the Russian Secret Service. Careful, Neil. Remember what happened when I mentioned Russian spies. If they are listening, I think you're great guys. <laughs> Whatever. As the undercover work continues, Martin finds this covert operation may have a link to his past. The production company have released some very impressive action pictures on their Facebook page. Over recent years, Scott Adkins has been building a big enough following through his no-nonsense action films such as American Assassin, Expendables 2 and Accident Man. He also stars in the eagerly awaited Ip Man 4, which opens in China at Christmas. Legacy of Lies could be his breakthrough film when it opens here early next year. One to watch out for, perhaps. Another one to watch out for is the classic in this month's Elijah Guide to the Classics. Graham, play the music.
part of Jerry Goldsmith's score from the original Planet of the Apes, a music score ahead of its time. Well, ahead if you ask me. This month, Elijah is joining us to talk about the first Planet of the Apes film, with perhaps a nod to the other incarnations. One of my favourites. Over to Jeff and Elijah. Hello, and welcome to your At The Flicks team. Welcome to Elijah. We're going to do another retrospective on a classic film, this time Planet of the Apes. The focus is going to be on the original, but we are going to take a look at the saga as a whole. Elijah, how do you feel about the original Planet of the Apes? Um, For the most part, I liked it a lot. I was stunned, Elijah, when I I went back to watch it. And uh, there's a little story behind this. I snuck in to see this film when I was 11, when it first came in. Wow. You weren't allowed to see it until you were 13, and I managed to to get in with some older friends. You know, I remember the final scene. I can't remember anything else. So when I sat down to watch it again, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to fill in all the, the gaps. I can't quite remember. It was unbelievably bad. It was. <laughs> I, I disagree on this, but it we'll was, come to that. It in a minute. was very wordy. It was talky. The characters made no sense. It was very poor until the last shot, of course, which is the the iconic shot exactly. And then I watched Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and that's the film I remember. So I, oh. I, the first one, maybe I was too young. I don't know, but certainly I, I remember coming home and saying to my parents, oh, yes, it's actually on planet Earth. You think it's another planet and the whole way through, but it's really planet Earth. And then being quite interested in how director had managed to fool everybody. No action in it. Lots of running around. Very, very stagey, very slow. This is a <laughs> retrospective spoiler alert. <laughs> I watched it for the first time about 15 years ago. Exactly. I just completely missed it. And I was bored to my Bored out of my skull. I've got to disagree, but Elijah, over to you. You had some interesting points on Beneath before we get on to the main plan of the apes. Uh, yeah, Beneath is a TV movie. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned at one point, like, uh, you know, it came out in a period where not a lot of big sci-fi sagas were coming out. None. Absolutely After none. watching Beneath, I understand why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, I disagree with you on that as well. Oh, this is going to be an interesting conversation. Yeah. It was there. There are a couple of decent set pieces in there, like when he gets down to the the metro station. Um, some of the makeup work on the uh, the mutants was good, but uh. let's go back to the original Planet of the Apes for a moment. Then we will touch. I'm actually with you. I I did enjoy the original Planet of the Apes. I think it has problems. Essentially, what Planet of the Apes is the first one is an extended Twilight Zone episode. I mean, Rod Serling yes. wrote the script. He created from Pierre Boulet's Monkey Planet novel. 20th Century Fox said we couldn't film it as Sterling had written it because he'd written it in that style that, you know, the world was mechanized and the apes running everything. Mm -hmm. Couldn't do that, didn't have the budget. So they brought in Michael Wilson, who toned down Sterling's script. But I still think it's constructed as a Twilight Zone episode. It's very much a thought piece you know it's not flashy sci-fi it's certainly not action oriented it it posits a few interesting points about time dilation but what they never go into in any great depth but it's all leading up to that last point you know even the the bits in the cave and you know all of that very much a, a thoughtful piece 
and the second one is is a bit more action. I'm surprised the first one was ever a hit. I think the last shot made it a hit. <laughs> the, the the last shot does, but I think there's a lot to be said for a, a, a lot of the rest. I mean, on the, say on the surface level, it's a Twilight Zone thing, and you're quite right. You know that twist makes it, but there's four themes I think running through this film. So the first theme is. And you've got to bear in mind when this is made, it's 67, 68. Yeah. It, was, it, it came out wide release in America in Feb 7, in 68. It got a limited release in December 67 so that you could qualify for the Oscars. First thing is about the rise of youth culture. You know, yeah. that annoying little chimpanzee yeah. that says, you know, never trust the old. <laughs> and, and, and that was surely the counterculture at the time. I mean, a lot- and how old was Charlton Heston at that point? Now, that, that's a really good 45. point. 45. <laughs> yeah. We're going to come back to that, Elijah, because I'm going to rewrite the beginning of this film in a moment. Because um, he's quite an old guy. In fact, two years later, he made a film called Number One, in which he played a professional American football player coming to the end of his career at 50. I don't think your body well, can last that long, could it? I was only guessing oh, at 45. Actually, you, you've got a couple of football players that are getting up there. Really? Yeah. Usually uh, quarterbacks are the ones that last the longest, the linemen, the shortest time. So that's theme one. Theme two is race. You know, a lot of it's been seen as a metaphor for the slaves have taken over, they're now in control. So again, in 67, 68, with everything that's going on, Martin Luther King and all of that, you've got this metaphor for a a race relation story. Do you mean like it was kind of a... um... Uh, a white fear fantasy? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I can see that. Definitely. Yeah. Because, I mean, all the, the makeup has made them all black. Yeah. They're in charge. The white guys are all subservient. I mean, there's only one black guy in the film, and he gets killed off quite early on. The big trope is black guys always die first. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it happened in that one. The The next one is, again, the theme of the time, nuclear apocalypse. You've got. Dr. Strangelove, Failsafe, Bedford Incident, and this. Come the end of the film, you realise the world's been destroyed in a nuclear war. With the iconic lines like, no, you did it, you animals! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. God damn you all to <laughs> hell. Damn you all to hell. <laughs> and, I've been using that as a gif, like, constantly. <laughs> <laughs> Since I watched it. And the final one is religion versus science. Yes, that's very yeah. strong. Yeah, and that really struck me more so than the race thing because I was expecting the race thing. I did not expect the religious versus science. And in very much evolution versus scripture because the apes have this deep affection for this, their book and their scripture and they're constantly talking about evolution which was very strange, very strange. Odd mix of the two because the religion was scientific. You can tell it's very much treated within the idea of American evangelicalism. So it's kind of a, a pushback against that, I think. But, I mean, during the, the 60s and 70s, you know, evolutionary science was already accepted by all the major institutions. You just had a few standout people in the Protestant community in the States that were kind of still against it. But in terms of film history, it's five years after Inherit the Wind, which is about the famous monkey trials in the 20s. Uh-huh. Again, I thought that was, was quite intriguing. I, it just took me by surprise. I did not expect it. I noticed it, you know, the first time I watched it. Um, I think it also takes a lot of ideas more from an Old Testament point of view so than a 
a uh, Christianity point of view. Even though it's trying to tie that in, I don't think that the the script writers had a lot of knowledge of it. It sounds more mosaic law than anything else. That's an interesting point on script writers because Sterling occasionally would touch on religion in the Twilight Zone, but very rarely and not to any great depth. Whether that came from him or come from Michael Wilson, I don't know. It would seem odd to me that Sterling would touch the religion versus science theme when in his version of the script, it was a much more recognisable society to what we've got now. So Yeah, it probably leaned a lot more heavily on the, the race spheres. Yes, because he touched on that a lot in, in the zone. Yeah. yeah, so those four points going around. But now I want to go back to something that really intrigued me and took me a little while to get over because I, I did like the film. I thought the way they set up the alien world, the way they tried to trick you with the architecture, the weather and everything, that was great. This space mission. I mean, what, what the, the hell, hell was, was that? that about? Yes. And who, who allowed them to smoke cigars in a spaceship? In that <laughs> spaceship. So, right. And put the lit cigar right next to the flammable yeah. inflation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so you've got four crew members. We don't know what the space mission is. They go out, they come back. Yeah. And... You've got three middle-aged guys and one young woman, and then later on in the film they refer to her as Eve. You think that was gonna that would have yeah that would have been a completely different story if she'd survived. But I think she committed suicide personally <laughs> to get away from them. <laughs> oh, I'll break this. You know, Charlton Heston. He only talks about two things during the whole film. He talks about I hate mankind. I've had loads of women. I'm all right. You know, he, all the time he talks. I've had loads of women, and then he gets make sure he gets the one woman to come with him. You're thinking. I know why you went in last, Chuck, and put yourself into suspended animation. Because if you went in beforehand, one of them is going to kill you. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, you just don't want to be around him. And it's such an odd setup for a film. You, know, you don't know what the mission is. Three old men and one young woman. What on earth was that about? So that took me a while to get into. Yeah, and that really confused me because there was, you know, I'm not one for exposition, but... For crying out loud, tell me what's going on just now because <laughs> I cannot work this out. So they they went out on a mission for four years, but because they were traveling near the speed of light, thousands of years had passed, which is fine. That's proper time dilation stuff. That works. Got that. What were they trying to do? Why, why did anybody I go? I think he mentioned something at the very beginning of proving a scientist's theory of traveling just under the speed of light. Einstein did that in 1902. He'd already yeah, done he, general relativity. <laughs> so and what he was he trying to prove? He didn't have to exactly. kill himself. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of moments with Nova and and all yeah, that. Yeah, that's really bizarre. And it's even more strange in the book. That is really he's repulsed by himself for wanting mm-hmm. this woman who's very basic, very primitive, and that has been toned down a little bit in the film. Yeah, I mean, she did have the worst wig. In all of Hollywood. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my oh. <laughs> Poor woman. The worst wig. She's not that great of an actress, and she has to be quiet the entire time. So even if she could act, she can't act silently. Actually, when I was watching it, my wife kept coming in, and she was doing stuff, and, and she said, are you still watching that? And she <laughs> said, I said, yes. She said, has that woman talked yet? And I went, no. And she says, therefore, she's just a plot device. And I went, yeah, she's just a plot device. And then when in the second film, she went, oh, she's back. What she said? And I said, she's still not speaking. <laughs> <laughs> the, in the second, it's even worse. Oh, my goodness. 
Yeah. Like they give her more screen time, which I didn't think was possible and I didn't think anyone would be dumb enough to do, but they did. I'll I'll just briefly touch on that and then we'll go back. There's some couple of things I've still got to say about the original, but I read Charlton Heston's diaries and of course the the first film was a massive hit. You know, it's the first science fiction saga in effect yeah. of, of any reasonable budget. So they wanted Heston back for the sequel. He said no, I wouldn't do it. And they said, we'll offer you all this money. And his condition was, I'll only do it if you destroy the world at the end. <laughs> they say, yeah. And his view in his diaries was, well, if I do that, that'll be the end of it. There'll be no more sequels. Yeah. Nice, <laughs> one. Right. Nice, nice one, Jack. <laughs> How did that work out for you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it, it was just crazy. But this I'm really interested in on your view on this, Elijah, because... Graham and I grew up with this film, the series, the TV series, before we get to the modern stuff. How did John Chambers' makeup and those effects work for you in the film? Knowing the time in which it was made, I was actually really impressed mostly by the makeup. Again, the wigs and the humans look awful, just the worst. The apes look mostly convincing. They did a really good job of blending the the face aesthetics with their eyes so yep. you can get their eye emotions and then they could, they had, you know, manipulation of the mouth, which worked about 60% of the time. Yeah. It certainly Maybe. worked on, on the, the leading to chimpanzees. The uh, gorillas had a lot more problems. Yes. <laughs> but it's the way they slouched, you know, the way that Kim Hunter and Roddy McDowell slouched with it. It still worked for me. Yeah, it worked for me. I thought that it was, was good. Great. I mean, all the rest of the special effects were nonsense from a modern perspective, but the makeup was certainly, you know, still relevant and still worked. Yeah. I think the production design was really excellent. The The makeup, if it hadn't been for the mouths, yeah, I, I wouldn't have been bothered by it at all. I would have been completely kind of sucked in. They even did a really good job with the hands, trying to make the hands look different and move differently than than uh, the humans. They don't quite look and act as ape-like as the ones in 2001, but... I see what you mean. The feet were the ones that, that caught me. Again, I thought that was yeah. that was quite good when you see that mm-hmm. and, and the way they just shuffle along. The apes in 2001 A Space Odyssey, of course, were all mime actors, so they were very much into moving like apes and it came across through... While the apes in Planet of the Apes were trying to Regular act, actors. act as well. Yeah, so I thought they did a, a reasonable job. Well, no, a good job of the shuffling and the, and the sort of the bow-legged gait of, the, uh, of apes and that sort of thing. Yeah. It was quite good. Okay. I think they actually forgot to do it several times. Oh, gosh, yes. Yes, there was a number like of places. They'd yeah. be walking normally and then the camera will change and they'll be shuffling and yep. then yeah. that was, was pretty oh. entertaining. Oh, speaking of camera, those 60s zoom-in shots just got up my nose at the end. <laughs> enough, Franklin, enough. Yeah, yeah. You know? Okay, they were annoying, but yeah. they made the cinematography in that film unique, whereas in the sequel, Beneath, the cinematography is bland, it sucks, it's all these random close-ups, there's nothing, there's nothing to look at in the second film. No. Whereas in this one, I mean, at least we're doing crappy zooms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a fair did, comment. Did you think I thought the first one was more cinematic than the second yes. one? The second one was very much very TV, very flat. Yeah, no, this one I think they I, I think they try to do a lot of unique things. Again, I don't, I haven't watched a ton of films from that 5-year block. 
So I don't know exactly what the cinema, cinematography styles were back then, but it seems to me that it was pretty unique. They tried to keep you on your edge. So uneasy. A lot of the camera movement is jerky. When they're chasing after their clothes, you get a lot of front first-person views yep. with the camera and stuff like that. I just want to jump onto something that I'm going to agree with you, Elijah, but Graham isn't, so I'm going to give him the first shout. Jerry Goldsmith's music. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Let him go, Elijah. We'll rip but him no, apart in a minute. Um, <laughs> I know I'm going to get ripped apart. I thought it was... Yes, I could see what he was trying to do. It was very discordant. It was very, it was evoking a sense of unusual or strange or off kilter world, but it was still too screechy. I think the tweeters on my sound system got a real workout hmm. over the last couple of nights. Do you want to go first, Elijah? And disagree. Oh, I disagree strongly, but I'm giving Elijah first shout. And when Elijah gets him on the ground, I'm going to kick him. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I like the score. I like the the sense of unease that it gave you. The hunt sequence really stands oh, out. Brilliant, brilliant. With the uh, the kind of weird horn yes. that comes with. Okay. Um, I haven't had time to like really listen to it and get all the cues, but uh, I mean, I I enjoyed it. And again, the Goldsmith score is completely lacking in the second one. There's nothing musically to to latch on to. You've got the. Prayer for the bomb in the second one. Yeah, I know. I thought the second one was, uh, yeah. But the music in that was very poor. So I just want to pick up on that Goldsmith. And there was no electronic music. He changed orchestra pitch and various things. I mean, you know, wind instruments, he took the mouthpiece out. Yeah, It's just amazing. And I will say to you, I did see Goldsmith in concert 20 years ago. My ex-wife and my kids, I took them to it. My ex-wife loved the whole concert, apart from anything he did with Planet of the Apes, which she hated. So, <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was a wee bit too screechy. So let's go on and talk about Beneath, which we've already covered a little bit, and we talk about the TV movie theme of this. But I think Beneath is the quintessential Planet of the Apes film. With the exception of the original Planet of the Apes, every Planet of the Apes film has to have a big action scene in the finale. And it starts here. Mm-hmm. No, it's a, it's not an action film by action film standards. No. Or an action scene by action film standards. Yeah. The last part of it is the big shootout in the underground city. And then if you go into Escape, you know, it's the big shootout in the aircraft carrier. <laughs> then you've got Conquest, the big shootout all over the world. And then Battle for the Planet of the Apes. The title gives that one away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do they actually fight in that one? Or is it like war where, you know, there's just like a little bit of conflict and some emotional turmoil? <laughs> You're spot on. There is a battle in there, but it's it's not saving quite, Private Ryan. No, it's least. not saving Private Ryan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is bizarre, and that, but even in the new trilogy, you've still got that final act, which results in a in a battle of some description. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yet that started with beneath. For all its TV movie trappings and the use of James Franciscus, who's TV movie star of the week come the 1970s, it set the standard. I actually like Franciscus as the, the main actor. He was uh, a lot more likable to uh, to observe yeah. than Heston's Taylor. Yeah, he was a bit more human, wasn't he? Uh, the whole time Charlton Heston seemed a bit distant and a, a bit of a bit of an asshole, really. You know, you wouldn't yeah. want to be trapped on a ship with him for four years. Really, you could kind of tell though that Heston was having fun in the first film. I mean, Heston, the actor, he's a huge science fiction nut. I mean, he did 
Yeah. He went on to do such things as Silent Green and The Amiga Man. He really was a, a big science fiction fan, although he hated The Amiga Man. When it was Did he? Yeah. I mean, it's more fun than Silent Green, but then again, what isn't? <laughs> so, uh, have you seen sort of Escape, Conquest and Battle, or even any of the TV series, Plant the Apes? No, I haven't seen anything up until Tim Burton's. I have read up on them, so I know kind of the, the gist and the story behind it. But I haven't watched them, and I don't know if I want to spend four bucks a movie renting them. I will hand over to Graham at this point, who's our <laughs> expert on this theme. I thought the other three were very good, but I saw them when I was young. I mean, they were excellent, I thought. I haven't seen the Tim Burton one, though. You've not seen it? No, I didn't see that. We'll talk about that in a bit. I think I was in in the middle of having young children when the Burton one came out. 2001? Yeah, they were pretty young then. We were were at primary school, and we would have been intensely looking after them then. I can't say you missed out on a whole lot. Well, I I read the controversy, and I thought, oh, no, uh, bestiality? No, I'm not going to watch that. Yes. Well, you're reading it in the Daily Mail. (laughs) No. And the National so Enquirer. Yeah, yeah. Really yeah. I did. I watched the other movies and I, and I enjoyed them at the time. I thought they were all great and I, I really enjoyed them. But nothing had the impact of the first two, really. I think they became a wee bit formulaic until we got the new trilogy, which I thought were fantastic. So let's go talk about yes. that. We'll come back and talk about Tim Burton in a minute. But I want to look at that new trilogy because it dovetails into the original Planet of the Apes because you've got the missing spaceship, you've got Taylor and all of that. Elijah, what do you think on that, on that the new trilogy? I, I think the uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes is a great film. Great Patrick Doyle score. The CGI, it's a little bit spotty at times, especially watching it now, but it's still mostly excellent. I think Don, I love Don. I dragged my wife to see it in the theatres and she hated me for it. Uh, <laughs> But the one thing that struck me with the three, and I, I, I like them all, but come the very end of the third one, it really struck me as a Moses story. You know, he, he got his people to the promised land. He takes Caesar, ironically named, <laughs> and turns him into a very much a Moses slash Christ figure. So you have, you know, he's, he, he's trying to lead his people to the promised land. His son, and uh, I believe it's Rocket, they come back from finding this new paradise, the the promised land, kind of like Joshua and Caleb. And then as they're going, you know, all the people get captured. He's on the revenge mission. And then he gets put up on a cross and he's whipped. He's beaten. He's tempted by uh, Satan slash Koba. And, you know, he's doing that for the sake of all all of the other apes. This is really interesting. Yeah. I picked yeah. up an awful oh, list. Yeah. You can definitely tell that uh, Matt Reeves was watching the classics. Like he said he was inspired by Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur specifically. And then I think Bridge on the River Kwai and uh, some other of the classic films. When it came to creating Caesar's character, it was Ben-Hur and Ten Commandments. Going back to Planet of the Apes and finish this <laughs> off, <laughs> let's, let's just have a quick word about Tim Burton's bizarre Planet of the Apes. Now, it does look stunning. It is strange. What do you think, Elijah? I remember seeing it like when I was growing up. I saw it everywhere, and I wanted to watch it, and I'd beg my dad. like Every time I saw it at the video store, I was like, oh, Dad, let's watch it. My dad was like, eh, no. Finally, we were. it was just me, my brother, and my dad. We were in Haiti at the time. Some friends had given us like this stack of DVDs. My mom was gone. So we were, all we were doing for this week or two at night was huddling around his laptop, eating hot dogs, 
and watching movies. And so finally, we ran out of films to watch, and we watched <laughs> Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. And I was expecting, you know, something epic and apes and men fighting with swords. And I was just a little disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I haven't really missed anything. There's a really bizarre twist ending to it. And that ending is the closest it's ever got to the source material. All it, right. It's an Earth, as we know Earth today. Yeah. But with apes rather than people. All right. Okay. That's yeah. the book. The film is well acted by everyone except Wahlberg. Tim Roth goes a bit off off stratosphere, doesn't he, really, on occasion? I mean, Tim Roth always goes crazy. Yes, this is true. <laughs> that was Planet of the Apes. I think it's an interesting journey. I do think that there's a lot of merit in the original film. It has a lot of depth to it, but it is very different to every other Planet of the Apes film. Elijah, how would you sum up the original? I liked it for the most part. As far as holding up today, it doesn't really. So you kind of have to enjoy older films and kind of appreciate it for what it is. It's a good watch. Graham? I saw it at 11, and at the time it had a great influence on me. But as you said, Elijah... You know, there weren't many true science fiction films about at the time, and this was built up as something amazing coming over from America, this groundbreaking film that was making millions. And I went to see it, and I it did, because of the last shot, it did stick with me for many years. But coming back to see it again, I thought, oh, dear, that's not <laughs> that, that's very wordy. And I know I keep going on about cinema is meant to show, not tell, and this was a lot of telling. Well, sometimes you need a little bit of telling in cinema. Yes, exactly, yeah. But it's a balancing act, and I think it tipped over into the very wordy, very overwritten. The action scenes just don't stand up today. You mean you didn't like uh, watching Charlton Heston run for 10 minutes in circles? <laughs> in circles, yes. I mean, that was the most bizarre. It was like children's television, you know, where people are running <laughs> in and out and hiding and then running again. It was like a game of hide and seek, but... Really, it did look like he actually punched some of the the ape actors, though. <laughs> yeah, I thought. Yeah, some of those were pretty close. Yes, and there was one in the beneath the planet of the apes where I thought he's actually kicked him. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. All in all, it's nice to go back. It's it was nice to see, but apart from that one shot, it really didn't have much. But yeah, the huge franchise that built off it certainly built it, and it's not a patch on the final three. Mm. Um, no, the journey of, of Caesar is just fantastic. Yeah. And Circus is so good. Oh, oh my goodness. Circus is so great. Unbelievable. Circus needs to win an Oscar already. I just, yeah, the original. Yeah, I was just a bit bored, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> it's from maybe if I watched it in the 70s, I, I might have enjoyed it more. You like the lightness and the action of the Ingmar Bergman movies, don't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, much, much better. Yeah, they're just far too happy for me. I'm afraid I can't stand that <laughs> yeah. non-stop cycle of cheeriness. Yes, yes. They, well, they, they, I mean, they're only dark, macabre stories about people losing faith in God and yeah, yeah. Like yeah. just the devil. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'd yeah. like to see the Seventh Seal remade with Mel Gibson <laughs> <laughs> as the devil. As the devil. Yeah, he is it's the not devil. Devil is death. It's death, yeah. No, there's any devil in it. It's death, yeah. They did uh, a remake of The Silence, not officially, but it's uh, it's a remake and then it uh, disagrees completely with Bergman's take. Ah. It's called uh, Calvary with uh, Brendan Gleeson. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's on my list to watch. Yeah, I've seen that. 
It is good. And why does death start with a king's pawn move? That's just a stupid move. Anyway, that's just me being a chess nerd. <laughs> okay, so that was Planet of the Apes around a maze of other things. Thank you very much. Elijah, appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Elijah. It's been fun. Yeah, right. thanks. Okay. Thanks very I much. I must watch that again. Still not sure about that music, though. Here are some more on that score, especially for you, Neil. Thanks, Graham. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. Okay, guys, off to get those new format movie reviews ready. So it only remains for us to say... Jeff, you would be great as one of those stuffed human exhibits in the Planet of the Apes film. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. (laughs) Time to go back to the spaceship, I think. Now, where did I park it? And to everyone else... Thanks Thanks for listening listening and goodbye. That's a wrap. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. 